0: You are listening to the Book and Film Globe podcast hosted by me, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a tip-top show for you this week, a show that I really like and I'm really excited about. And I know it's good because I'm recording this after I've done all the interviews. So this is kind of the magic of podcasting. It's a post-production intro that I am doing and we have some incredibly good and fun stuff for you this week. We're going to have a roundtable with Book and Film Globe contributors Paula Schaefer and Rob Cutner and me and we're going to be talking about Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 2, a miraculous TV show that uh, is now, all eight parts of it, all four hours of it are now on Hulu. But first, I'm going to talk to our special guest this week, Stephen Marsh, a Canadian writer, a writer from Canada who has written a book called On Writing and Failure. Well, it's more of a monograph, but it's, it looks like a book. It feels like a book here in my hands. It's called On Writing and Failure, and it is quite revelatory for anyone who writes, anyone who fails, or anyone who reads for that matter. And Stephen and I will be right back after this self-produced musical interlude to talk about it. So I am a writer of great renown. I have published 12 books. I had a column in Vanity Fair once upon a time. I seem to remember that. It's kind of like a dream at this point. Uh, And I've had a number of other, I guess you could call them successes along the way. And yet, I'm still kind of a failure as a writer and as a person, and I feel that every day. Apparently, so does every other writer. And the writer Stephen Marsh, who, is in Canada at the moment and usually, I imagine, uh, has written, a, I, don't, I guess you would call it a book. It's more like a monograph um, called On Writing and Failure, published as part of something called the Field Notes series. And I am uh, friends with Stephen. First of all, Stephen's here. Hello, Stephen.
1: Hey, how are you?
0: Hey, hey. good. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm friends with Stephen on Facebook, although I don't recall ever having met him in person. Uh, and he started uh, mentioning this um, this piece, this book on writing in failure. And I, I found his comments relatable and I uh, dialed up a copy and I read it and it is incredibly uh, wise and erudite and kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time. And I related to every word of it. And uh, now Steven, you're experiencing an incredible amount of success because of this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh... Failure mania is that what you called it? Failure you
0: mania. Right?
1: Failure mania, and I'm the Hulk Hogan of failure mania right now. I'm ripping my shirt. Oh, yeah, I'm killing Gawker. i you know.
0: Are you all? I'm oh, you're going to take down Gawker for the third time? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That's that's right. that's me right now. All
0: right. So Stephen is all oiled up and ready to talk to us about this book. <laughs> you know what I what I loved about uh, on writing and failure? Well, there there's a lot of you know wit and sort of aphorisms in it. But there, you, uh, you you spend a lot of time uh, sort of delineating how writers who we consider to be, you know, the greatest writers of all time, uh, people who you would consider a massive success because we still talk about them and read them today, but in their time, they were complete failures. I
1: yeah, know, I mean, where... I think it's really important for anyone who's planning on doing writing, like... And, and taking it seriously to know that James Joyce never made a living at it ever, like at any point in his life. And that, I mean, there were a lot of failure options when it came to talk about James Joyce, but the one that I just couldn't get over is that he sat a three day examination and gave a job talk, which was his lecture on Robinson Crusoe, which have you ever read that James Joyce on Robinson Crusoe? No. It, it, I mean, literally it's one of the greatest um literary essays of all time. I mean it's it's totally it, it's totally brilliant on, on every level. And then this Italian technical college in Como said, "Yeah, you know, we just we're not really convinced of your qualifications because they're Irish." And so and so he couldn't get a job teaching English. And this was after he'd written Dubliners and it was halfway through writing Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man.
0: Dubliner so, is arguably the greatest short story collection ever written in English.
1: I mean I would – I don't know about that, but I would definitely say that it shows competence enough to teach, te- you know, technical college – technical writing to Italian students in Como in 1912. For certain. Like I think there's – I think that we may be confident.
0: Yeah, you know, I have like a – I mean I'm not, I'm no James Joyce. Maybe I am. I don't know, but I don't think I am. But, I, you know, my, my equivalent to that is I, I had a, a a running deal with Amazon Publishing where I published five novels in four years. I mean, I had a good run and some of them are pretty good. Right. And then, right. but they weren't selling, they weren't, they actually did sell fairly well, but they're not, not well enough. And so like I, I had to pivot to like writing these um, these, basically these fan fictions, they had something called Kindle worlds where you would writers could get paid to write, um, you know, short stories based on books uh, by authors who were more popular than they were. And then after those flopped, the guy who initially gave me my book contract gave me the option to pitch ideas for text based stories for middle grade readers right that you would text to middle grade readers and I just, and I was just and and I was like, "Is that all there is
1: well for i mean there's lots of people out there who would love someone at Amazon saying that they want pitches for text yes. to middle grade readers Yes, I mean there are like there are like literally tens of thousands of people who would cut off a finger for that. Right. Right. Um, so like, like, yes, I mean, I think what you're dealing with here is like the technological change that we've all lived through and the, you know, career chaos that it has demanded of everyone. Right. Cause like, like I think, you know, no, like I, I don't, I don't really, one of the reasons I don't really envy anyone is because any field that you're in is probably, being destroyed right now doomed and you're like if you're a novelist if you're a television writer if you're a certainly if you're a professor like you know it's all like it's all it's all being the temples are falling on either side uh, like on, on on every side yeah so, so it's you kind know of like that story you told is having to adapt to technology you know i mean and that's i think that's something that we're all dealing with and and we'll continue to have to deal with from now on
0: yeah it's kind of frightening, but it's also it's also kind of liberating at the same time i mean if you if you can think of it like that that you know we're all kind of in this together and none of it means anything, I guess that's liberating i don't know
1: yeah i mean i think well I think it is like i think you know i i think part of the problem for writers of our generation is that the boomers had this incredibly sweet arrangement of like post war growth and in, you know, investment from the state in art and, and literature and the rise of, you know, the humanities, uh, like the explosion of them from the sixties on. And we're living in the aftermath of that, right? Like we can all remember, like you had a column in vanity fair. I mean, I remember writing for Esquire and like, just before the crash, just before the 2008 crash. And they were like, and they flew me into New York to play a video game for a day for a column. Right. Right. and, and then you talk to writers who are 10 years older than me and like their stories of magazine land are like, Oh yeah, $5 a word for really normal stuff. That's re- relatively easy to produce. For, rest, and for restaurant are,
2: reviews. For
1: restaurant reviews. Yeah. And like kids who are 10 years younger than us, they're all way more fucked than we are. Right. Like, like it's, like it's way, way harder for them. They're the kind of people for whom like, you know, a, a middle, an Amazon executive asking them to pitch middle grade, mid, middle school text. Is like absolutely would be great news,
0: right? right? But then and, you, but then you so, have, like, but then you have the writers yeah. 10, 15 years younger than them who are on Book Talk and are selling you know tens of thousands of self published novels a week. You know, like the, You really
1: want to envy people on Book Talk? Oh, I
0: don't envy. I don't.
1: I no, no. I don't. I, but see that. I mean, that's the thing. It's so vulnerable, and it's so. And also, is that like that's not really what. Like, I don't think many people get into writing to be like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm getting into writing so that I can promote it on a Chinese dance-based app. Like, that's not, yeah. you know, like, that's not, that's, like, I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they're quite happy with their success, but that's not, you know, that's, I, it doesn't seem very enviable to yeah. me. No. My point is really that we live in the aftermath of this period, but ordinarily, like in the ordinary course of literature, that feeling of we're all in this together and it's all falling apart is actually totally the norm. Mm.
0: Right. and Is that because there's always technico- technological and cultural change ongoing or because writers just uh, historically have not been uh, valued by society?
1: People do not want to have the meaning of their lives challenged despite what they say. Right. And, that, and, and I think the very best writers do that. Right. And, you know, like I, I think also it's that this business in itself making meaning is extremely difficult and like prone and and sort of like it's material use value at any given account at any given moment is, has never been very strong.
0: Right. What's that line in your book? Nobody, no one needs a manuscript. No one
1: needs a man. I mean, when people say like, I can't believe it took 30 tries to get my manuscript published. I mean, I always think like, well, like you know P, the average salesman has to make eighteen calls before someone will listen to them to to sell something that is actually a value like you know like new internet access or something like that not a manuscript which people don't really you know, like very few people actually need yeah
0: well let's uh there's some other notable examples of failure in your book that i that I found quite i mean i think we i think I've heard the stories of Herman Melville before, but I found those um pretty uh, pretty edifying, right? I
1: mean, he was... I mean, he had it... Of all the stories in the book, that one is the one that I think is just like... I mean, he must have wondered what the hell was going on. You know what I mean? Like, he... Like, every book he wrote much better. Like, and he... Like, I think he just, he just got better. Period. Like, I mean, I know everyone talks about Moby Dick as like... But, you know, Billy Budd is truly... Like one of the greatest things ever written, yeah. And you know, he could not find a home for it. And then his first book was like a massive bestseller that was, you know, Typey, a peep at Polynesian life, which is basically a, a shitty little travelogue, right? And he, you know, so he went from that, which sold really well. I think it sold like ninety thousand copies, and then down to like Billy Budd, which is like in his, you know, in a bread box in his house for twenty-five years after his death. Very cruel. Very, very, like, like, definitely, he must have felt that there was some malign influence in his life
0: yeah, for sure. That is insane. And then you also talk about the um, the kind of failure that comes from success. Right? You mentioned uh, a couple of examples. You know, uh, Ralph Ellison, for instance, who uh, wrote *Invisible yeah. Man*, definitely one of the greatest American novels. And then pretty much um, nothing. <laughs> some he wrote some. He wrote He's some interesting. He wrote some essays. Oh, yeah. He wrote some essays, and uh, you know, and then he had that, yeah. and then that that second novel. Um, well, uh, wasn't there, he didn't, didn't he like lose an entire novel in a fire?
1: Well, I mean, there were certain claims of that, but like, I, I don't know. He had a lot of years to write things like, and you know, the thing was, it wasn't just him. Like the thing that was very interesting to me is like, there were, a bunch, like, you could say the same thing about Harper Lee really. Yeah. Um, or, or like, um. Certainly, the guy who wrote Joe Gold's secret. Oh, Joseph Mitchell. Joseph Mitchell, right? Where it's like he's called the greatest, you know, magazine writer in human history in 1963, and then like never writes another word again. Comes into the office every day, yeah. Never writes a word again. Um, I think there's just a, a kind of odd thing where, you know, writing this book because I could, I sort of kept these stories because I found them very comforting for myself. But then when I was stitching them together I'm like, yeah, there really is this pattern where when the when the when the writer is given the keys to the whole world, things tend to fall apart.
0: Well, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been given the keys to the whole world, but you know, I had no. I had a huge success at least in terms of publicity when I was 30, right? My first book, um, The Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature, is a full page review in the New York Times. I was, uh, you know, I, I, there there were photos of me everywhere I was on the cover of poets and writers' magazine et cetera et cetera and you know here i here I sit all broken hearted <laughs> you know it's like well uh, but it's fine it's fine but what, what I'm saying is like is like it, it doesn't actually you know me as you point out in the book it doesn't actually mean anything in the long run
1: no, it doesn't i mean it really doesn't yeah, and i mean they're they're, they're writers who've had like no offense but like way more success than that. Sure. That have exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah, well that's right? exactly like, that's exactly have, right. Like I, I had yeah, su- would, I had success that like, you know, for some people was seemed like the pinnacle and then other people have success that I, I can't even begin to imagine. Like selling yeah. books. Selling books would be nice.
1: Well I mean I've known people who sold like who've made literally hundred like a hundred million dollars plus and I don't think it assuages their sense of not being recognized. I know it doesn't, right? And like, like I, I, I mean, I think uh, the thing is, all the standards of success aren't really real. So it doesn't, and, and you, and you know it, right? Like it's, like you know it every time you cross one. Yeah. That, that like what is just revealed is like, oh, it's just another room. Like it's just another hallway that you can walk down for a little bit. Um, like that that, that and it, you know that's true of. That's why I say in the book, like as you age, like success just becomes less and less meaningful. I mean, it does to me, anyway. I,
0: I will say this: the one thing that keeps me going, um, other than the fact that I need to support myself and my family yeah. and 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 at least help support. That's a big one. That's the big one. That's the main one. Yeah. Because if I if I had made a hundred million dollars, I wouldn't give a shit whether or not I were more famous than anybody
1: else. Like it. it you say that now, but. But like, come on, man! No, come on,
0: no! I swear. I mean, I might care a little bit,
1: dude. If you had a hundred million dollars right now, you'd still be interviewing me about the same subject, saying I've got a hundred million dollars and it didn't make me feel any better. You and I both take
0: care know of, that to be true. It would take care of a lot of my problems, but I get, you know, guaranteed it would take care of a lot of a, not all of my problems, but a lot of my problems. But the one thing I will say is that I keep doing it because I actually enjoy writing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, look. I mean, I don't think like people ask me like you wrote this book, why do you write? And I was like, well, I do it compulsively. Like, I mean, like I I, I don't think it. I, I mean, it, it's kind of that simple. Like, I have a friend who's a gambling addict, and he was and he and I mean, actually, there is a really interesting connection with gambling addiction and writers. I've, like, I've always found. I share like, them.
0: I share those. I share those compulsions.
1: Well, there's like a and, and like he you know he said something really interesting to me was he like his therapist said to him. Um, you know, I don't want you to stop gambling. I just don't want you to do it in front of your family. And he couldn't. Right. And this was very, this obviously had the effect that the, the publicist that the therapist wanted, which was like, yes, this is, you're doing this out of some kind of profound sense, like some kind of inner sense of shame mixed with, uh, God, like self, you know, self-control and or you know self um you know projection and i and I was like, that's exactly how I write, like it's exactly those kind of weird psychological uh fail you know pathologies really that that create this this compulsion to write, and I think that's just that's just a fact on the ground to me, you know what I mean like that's just a-
0: I would agree with you, although again, like I said, like I actually find the act of putting together sentences and, you know, try to yes. formulate ideas yes, and tell stories and tell jokes, especially tell jokes. Yeah. I find it pleasurable. Like, it's, it's, it, like I, ha- I I almost try to look at writing, even though it is technically how I, um, I get paid, I, I try to look at it as just another one in a series of enjoyable hobbies that I have.
1: Yeah, I've always been amazed by writers who don't want to write, who complain about it. I, like I don't. I'm obsessed like, with I, I, not I'm writing. Like, well, I, I enjoy it. Yeah, like, I, I, but it's like if you don't, if you don't want to do this, like, who's that? Who's that boomer writer who hasn't written anything since she was like 32? Who goes around pretending writer? Fran Lebowitz. Fran Leibowitz. I mean, I saw one of her books in the bookstore the other day, and I was like, she really does not deserve to call herself a writer. Like, there's a lot of people out She's here. She's like, a professional wit, Stephen. I guess so, but it's like if she's if she's a professional witch, she's really not very funny. But it's like, you know, there are a lot of people out here like struggling and trying to make meaning and getting their asses handed to them and and out here fighting and like you're getting all this saying all these like witty things about how you or a writer who doesn't like to write and i just i have no patience for it
0: and get it and, and, and there's a netflix you documentary I mean? uh, made by martin scorsese about her a six, six
1: a six hour one and it's just like that is boomer nonsense at its peak <laughs> like it's like you, you you want the pose of writing without the actual struggle involved in it i just got, i just i found it there was something about it i mean i'm not usually this way but i found it i found it kind of infuriating
0: well we're the i i think we represent the gen x uh, approach which is you know yeah grind it out for minimal reward and 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 minimal. resent everyone and resent everyone who is inferior to us because it's true all right well anyway uh, on writing and failure by stephen marsh is available um you can get it wherever you get books uh what's the what's the public so it was funded by canada there's like as many canada stamps inside the front cover as there is on like a on like a movie you'd see at the film forum or something, it's like it was Is funded there? by the Ontario mm-hmm. Arts Council, Ontario Creates, yeah. Canada Council for the Arts. Must be nice to live in a country that actually funds writers, even even to a minimal extent. We have to. Well, I, would,
1: I would not know, but <laughs> maybe the guys at Biblioasis the Oasis would. But I I would not know. Personally.
0: We we we, ha- we have to uh, we have to wear corporate logos on our jerseys, like uh, like like. <laughs> like like athletes. Anyway, Stephen, uh you pick up this book uh if you are a writer or if you're just feeling like a failure, it will strangely make you feel better. And thank you for chatting with me today, Stephen.
1: Pleasure.
2: Masses enslave us. Roland. Oh,
0: hello. Who is this? It's your mama. If you're my mother, what is your last name? Mel. It's
2: my mother. That confirms it.
0: I'm Kublai Khan.
2: Amelia Earhart. They're up.
0: I am Sigmund Freud. Join me for my master bates. <laughs> <laughs> master class.
2: What?
1: Who are you? Some call me Jesus Christ, son of God.
2: Some call him broken corny.
3: My new book idea, the comma soup truck from soup to nuts. If I'm not going slurp,
0: slurp, slurp, I'm eating soup. Judas, you pissed on my feet. Uh. I know you hear me. You're gonna blow your
3: hands for 30 seconds and you're just not gonna look at me?
0: Sorry, I only have big pieces of silver about to embark on the biggest campaign in the history of the world part two. Noah, you were supposed to get two of every animal. It has come to pass. History of the world part two has arrived on your TV screens. The eight part miniseries. It's a sequel to Mel Brooks's history of the world part one, a movie that came out 42 years ago. 42 years ago. I was alive to see that in the theaters and probably a dozen times in various forms since then. And I I can't remember a pop culture product that I was looking forward to as much as History of the World Part Two, which is now airing on Hulu. And I don't think anyone else on earth shares my enthusiasm for it, except for maybe the people who created it. But I've managed to corral two of Book and Film Globe's uh, contributors, Rob Kuttner and Paula Schaefer, to talk with me about it. Rob Kuttner, is a comedy writer, and I wanted to get his perspective on it. And Paula writes about a comedy for us a lot on the site, so I figured she'd have some interesting, interesting thoughts. So hello, guys. Hello. Oh, all right, so the first voice was Rob. The second voice was Paula, <laughs> if you all couldn't fi- figure that out. So, all right, so here we go. I, I don't know where you guys are with the show, but, you know, as we're talking, it's Thursday, my dudes, Um, and the show started on Monday, and they were releasing basically two episodes a night on Hulu. Um, And I found out that they were releasing the episodes um, at 11 p.m. my time the night before. So I just stayed up every night and watched them. So I've seen the whole thing. I can't imagine you guys are at the same point.
2: I watched it all.
0: You watched it all. All right, good for you. You you did your homework. That's good. Um, So, you know... I so now I've seen the whole thing. Now I know exactly what they were going for for History of the World Part Two, and you know I'm. There's I've seen some online hate for the show, but I'm not disappointed. Like I feel like they fulfilled the brief of, of co- covering the same kind of ground that Mel Brooks covered in the original movie and updated it really well. And you know, and then some. I mean, I laughed consistently. Oh, not at everything, but consistently, and you know, was kind of amazed at. at how well they were able to mimic the style and the tone of the original movie. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. Maybe you just yeah. I,
3: I, I have. I, w- I haven't. I've only gotten through seven. Full disclosure. Okay, well,
0: that's close enough.
3: Right. <laughs> I got. I got the feel of it. And um, you know, I mean, I think it's. I think it's. There's some un- unevenness that comes with the territory just because of the quantity of it. Like, you know, I think it could have easily been you know, four, four, night yeah. Yeah. four night extravaganza with four episodes. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, but I, but I really like, think it's like really solid, uh, sketch comedy. And as you say, updating. And also, you know, I, I, I almost wish there was a little bit less attempt to go for the, get the, the, the topical gimmick framing things like the I mean, like the jackass thing feels like, because that's already such an old reference, for example, you know, Sure, I, I just I just think it has, it has solid comedy bones already built into it with all these characters, doing all these little bits. That having like like galley on TikTok just makes me sort of tired about like this will not age as well as the predecessor did. The predecessor I think ages remarkably well.
0: Yeah, well, that's,
3: and I wanted this one to do as well.
0: That's true. I think that like it does kind of go for the modern in some places, but then again, if you look at, for instance, like all right, so there's four. There there's sort of four main narrative threads throughout the whole show, right? They have the U.S. Civil War. They have the Russian Revolution. There's the story of mm-hmm. Jesus and then uh, the story of Shirley Chisholm, which is a little random, right? right? right. But, but, but you know, it, I mean, it, it's fine. It's fine. It is. That's part of history. Um, it's a choice. Yeah, and, you know, and I feel like the civil, especially the Civil War and the Russian Revolution segments are really, really hue closely to um, what Mel Brooks did uh, with the um, Roman Empire and with uh, the French right. Revolution right. in the first right. movie, right? They're like these r- ridiculous, longer-form narratives that have old t- guess, yeah. a ton of gags. And characters you follow from point A to point B to point C, as ridiculous as those points might be. And it parodies you know, uh, both contemporary life and sort of the absurdities of history at the same time. I thought – I thought they were tone perfect. Uh, Paula, you haven't chimed in yet. What do you think about that stuff?
2: Um, I think that the series is kind of a chance for comedians to pay tribute to Mel Brooks. Yeah. Like they're all like, hey, let me do my best, Mel Brooks. Let me put my spin on this in a way that Mel Brooks would have done. (laughs) And so I think that's what kind of modernizes it to kind of, you know, go with what Rob said. Um, they're trying to appeal to current audiences and not just people like Neil who are like, I've been up since you know six AM with my banner and my bowl of popcorn and I'm ready to go. They they want to give it an in for people who don't know the Melbourne school of comedy because that's not really a thing that that is the style right now. Um
0: But it know. is but it is amazing how well they Imitate, especially the Civil War segment, where you have the, you know, you both have Ulysses S. Grant and Robert Todd Lincoln going on an absurd mission to West Virginia to find alcohol, <laughs> and and then you also have these three, you know, these three Union soldiers. They're kind of these, uh, you know, like these the three Sto- multicultural three stooges who have to who have to then go rescue them because they get into trouble. And you know, it works like it, it just feels a lot like. Um, the old segment, segments from the original movie.
2: Yeah, that that one particularly does. It, I mean, it feels it like
0: the
3: song, so saddles too, for that matter. Yeah. I guess. That.
0: Yeah. Well, to the to the extent that the town in um, in West Virginia is called Rock Ridge, <laughs> and they and they have to continually say not that one, but it actually, of course, is. It looks exactly like it.
3: Right.
0: Um. And yeah. But again, like I feel like because they're... You know, like the Underground Railroad, for instance, is like is like the New York subway. You know, it works pretty well. Like, I, I it feels it it, it, it uh, I don't know. It just it is such a um, direct line to that old school of comedy that I know. You know, Rob, you and I grew up, and Paula, Paula also. We all we all grew up with that kind of comedy, right?
3: It has that like is that sticky quality that like um, the Zucker Brothers also right yeah the police, the police academy the police academy movies right
0: Is the boar's belt turned into a movie well you know the original history of the world part one like you know shecky green henny youngman you know uh sid caesar right. they're all in it so you know obviously like everyone from that generation is dead except for mel brooks um i don't know there's a teddy roosevelt gag um <laughs> in the eighth episode and i you know and uh Ike Berenholtz plays Teddy Roosevelt, but there's this guy with him in in this sort of locker room setting where they're doing these workouts. And I was like, is that Don Rickles? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't because Don Rickles is dead.
2: Don Rickles is dead. But it
0: was someone who looked like Don Rickles. Oh, who was that?
2: Oh. So it's spoiler, Rob. In episode eight, they exhumed Don Rickles' corpse. Ah. Rob Rob, there's no length they won't go to for the comedy.
3: They, they saved the best for last. Again, I get no respect. Even if I'm under the ground, I can't stay under the ground.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So all right. So there's there's a couple of other things I I, I want to cover here. Like, well, first of all, um, the best to me, the, the the absolute pinnacle of the show is actually episode two, uh, where they do this, to to my mind, this really accurate uh, take on Curb Your Enthusiasm called Curb Your Judaism, you know, where Nick Kroll plays Judas Iscariot like as Larry David, and um, it, it has the the pacing and the rhythm and the the exact kind of jokes that a Curb episode does, um, but applying it to the story of Jesus, which I thought right. was... It worked incredibly well. Like, I was like... I was shocked at how well... Know. It
3: you doing. know, um, so this... You, you you probably noticed from his, the Remember Roles, he's it, and also in the credits, Nick Kroll's an EP, and I, you probably saw Kroll's show, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. I it, mean, it had, it had, this has his imprimatur all, all over it, I think. Like, like the style the style, nailed parodies, the recurring segments, the sort of like juggling of past and present character, you know, repertory characters. It's all like the Kroll show meets, you know.
0: Meets uh, Mel Brooks.
3: It has like wisely like taken on that as a template, I think.
0: Yeah. But I mean, agreed. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a a fan of a lot of uh, what Nick Kroll did on, on Kroll show, but the Kroll show, but I mean, this, this, um that, the Curb parody is so incredible. Also, like, they incorporated, you know, J.B. Smoove and Richard Kind are in it, playing right. Bas- right. basically the characters they play on Curb. Yeah, I mean, that's
2: just... Yeah, that was the best. I I kind of wonder if, you know, History of the World Part 1 had kind of that spin on making fun of the big epic blockbuster movies. And this, since it was a TV show, they have kind of taken that same tone to apply to television as a medium to make fun of. Mm. And, and so that's why they chose to do it as a long form TV show so that they could skewer lots of TV stuff. Whereas if it was a movie, they would just be skewering movies again. So it kind of took the same idea and just transferred the medium.
0: Well, it makes sense as a TV show. And I think that the audience for a movie version of this would actually be kind of limited. Um, This was going to be streaming no matter what. You know, my my main criticism of the show, and it's amazing that I have one given my, like, enthusiastic, like, fanboyness uh, about it, um, is that I feel like um, the thing that I loved about History of the World Part 1 is that it went in chronological order, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you started with the caveman, and then you ended yeah. up – you didn't end up – you ended up with Jews in space, basically, <laughs> which is where – spoiler alert, which is also where the show ends up, uh, but – it jumps around to me it jumps around in time too much like there's a like like there's no reason to break up the civil war segments like it like they do and and it and or even if they do break it up it's like everything's out of order time-wise so you like have a a segment you know the the Noah's Ark segment comes right after a Shirley Chisholm sh- sketch um which you know kind of takes away from the um the fun of seeing history evolve right
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that was that was an odd choice. And again, it might have just been to keep people tuning in episode after episode so that, well, if I don't like this sketch, I'll keep watching because next episode they're going to continue with that other one.
0: Or or they could have taken the time to hone each one and make it like individually perfectly awesome. Right. It's like because I feel like there's a lot of different takes on the life of Jesus but the first one is by far the best. Like their their parodies of Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary don't don't really work, to yeah. my to my mind, and like the note that Notebook parody was I'm mean like, what are we do? Why are we parodying the Notebook? You know, it just made no that that didn't make any sense to me. Uh, I
3: think um, I think that I, I agree that it didn't necessarily land with a lot of those choices or at least executions. I'll say, uh, um, bring bringing my sketch background into it, yeah. Neil, as he knew I would.
0: Yes, I wanted you to. <laughs>
3: um, uh, you know, a, a challenge for a sketch show, especially like a one that's just coming out of the gate, even even, even for a familiar property like Mel Brooks, you might think really is not that familiar to, to today's viewers. Like a sketch show with an unestablished repertory company. Like, like you have so little time with a sketch, especially when there's multiple sketches in the show, to establish a setting that like anything you can do that recurs is like is just like you know, is like hundred percent gold. So you know, I, you you can see why like it, it just made sense, especially like I think because people might necessarily not want not binge it. Maybe like you know, catch an episode here and there. Oh yeah, that thing. We brought it to, which I think worked really well with Kroll because Kroll was Kroll showed those things were individually just about their their own thing, like their their own topic.
0: Well, right. Like, I mean, but y- yes, I, I understand that. I just I just felt like it just. It to me was a little jarring to see like you know cave people and then Amelia Earhart right after each other like mm. I, you know it just it didn't it didn't it
3: would have been structured chronologically for sure I agree I just
0: yeah. yeah yeah I mean I like the structure of short bits you know interspersed you know you could even have like the uh, the longer bits broken up by short bits like you know but, but you know to I'm like wait a second we're back on Rasputin again I thought that's I thought that stuff was done with. Yeah. You know? So you know there were there there were just you know there's some sort of structural uh, problems to it, and I also felt like um, you know the the Shirley Chisholm segments there's just too many of them. Yeah, I
2: know. It felt very long. It, it felt like that was
0: a
3: little two of the little eight episodes
2: say, yeah. all all on its own.
3: That was like one sketch. I, I, I agree. Yeah,
0: and then we're like we have to watch the theme song again. <laughs> I
3: know, like
0: six times, you know. So that that that's. So that's problem. that's I'm not problematic. It's a, it's a, it's a problem, but you know, I think like the overall vibe I get over this show and it is like, Oh, I'm I'm just going to celebrate the fact that it even exists. You know? Yeah. It's so cool. I, hear, I,
3: I think celebration, like when I actually, when I hear, I know he just recorded it one time in a VO BO booth, but when I hear Mel Brooks say, His the world part two, like, like, and like knowing that he got to just say that I get like, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, you know, well, you know, in his lifetime to do that. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. And it's, you know, it's, it's heartwarming, heartwarming. Um, I, maybe I'm, maybe I have to give my dogs their heartworm treatment. I'm not sure. Um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, comedians who are, you know, slightly younger than me, but not that much like Nick Kroll and uh, Ike Barinholtz, you know, hold Mel Brooks in such high regard that they would, you know, they, they take the time <laughs> To make something that is such a, a loving tribute to, um, you know, the greatest comedic filmmaker of all time, right? You know, and that style of comedy that, like, seemed to me to be dead. I thought it was. I, th- I thought we'd we'd never, you know, I, we had long since devolved into um, scary movie six ter- territory, right?
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: That like, what made the parody movies good? That that loving attention to genre, the the willingness to just like do a getting punched in the balls joke, you know? Yeah. And there's so many getting punched in the balls jokes in this.
3: The, the bad version of it would have been like, uh, like recasting that trio from the original, but it was like bad, like loud versions of themselves, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I,
3: I like I said, like I like, like said, Gregory Hines, like some rapper, you know?
0: No, no. You know, that's the thing too, is like, you know, Mel Brooks was like, they've updated it to some extent. Like Mel Brooks was always like kind of, he wrote, Co-wrote um, *Blazing Saddles* with Richard Pryor, so he was always kind of hip to um, right. to the sort of uh, no, no.
3: He keeps on top of cultural trends for sure. Like, um, like, but the topic. But I rewatched
0: yeah. *History of the World* Part One, and uh, the, you know they they the word uh, "faggot" gets uttered more than once, and yeah. and you know, and uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a little cringy. But the, you know, this show does doesn't have that, but it does have like you know plenty of like you know risque gay humor at the same time. You know, there's the whole yes daddy gag where the where Ulysses S. Grant asked the soldier, you know, to take his uniform off. You know, there's there's lots of that kind of old fashioned stuff in there. And it all but it does modernize it and makes it a little more multicultural, right? Like there's there's a lot of Kublai Khan jokes. There's um quite a few, yeah. You know, there's some, there's some and there you're and and surely the Shirley Chisholm Jefferson style sitcom goes on and on and on. Yeah. Maybe someone yeah. could have uh, edited that down,
2: but it, it it is nice that I don't know Mel, Mel Brooks, having lived ninety six years, gets to see the next generation like paying this homage to him and knowing okay, my life's work is going to continue and carry on, and you know it. He gets to see uh, to to tip back to history of the world part one he gets to see it's good to be the king uh-huh.
0: yeah he is he's Experience the king it. he's the king yeah. I, now you know the the only thing that's left for me before i die. well i want i want to see um the phoenix suns win an nba championship but you know that's 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 highly unlikely uh, i'd like to see a modern version of airplane you know the zucker brothers and jim abrahams are still alive i know that they're not uh, politically as in vogue as Mel Brooks but I, I feel like you know I'm just putting this out there to the universe you know they are welcome at any time to give me a call I can help
2: oh God, I can on help your vision board.
0: I can help Rob you want to be in on it we, 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 you know we can I all be it. in on I,
3: I love it I I still think it kind of I, sh- I watched it with my 10 year old son I still think it kind of holds up even though there's like a couple it crams in a couple of at the moment current references like the Hare Krishna and stuff in the first 10 minutes and then once you get into the airplane stuff, it's like just like wackadoodle, and he loved it. You know, he went. We We watched the sequel, and, and <laughs> this was hilarious. He didn't want to see um, was it Top Secret because it wasn't the Zucker brothers. It was only Abrams. <laughs>
0: oh, but it's so. But, but
3: oh, oh, Hot Shots, Hot Shots.
0: Yeah, I mean, Hot Shots. Top, top Secret is you know the greatest, single greatest movie know, Hot shot. Shots, yeah. Hotshots is still pretty good.
3: <laughs> yeah, it is pretty good, but it's like you got such, so into the Abraham brothers. You know.
0: You're raising your kid right, Rob. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe someday our kids, are, maybe our, our kids will be involved in History of the World Part 3. I actually think they're going to make another season of this, honestly. It seems... Do it. Do. it seems likely. There's still more history. They've engineered it that way, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. History of the World Part 2 is here. Uh, our panel of comedic experts encourages you to get on it. Thank you guys for... Uh, hopping on and listening to me rant about it today, I, I appreciate it. All right, have a good one. We have no kicker. We have no, no <laughs> we have no joke to end it on. All right, guys.
2: Oh. <laughs> out of we run out of steam.
0: <laughs> uh, difficult. <laughs> All right, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Paula. History of the World, Part Two, now on Hulu. I have watched it in its entirety twice. I don't have anything else to do. But you can at least watch it once. uh, And I I think you'll love it. Or at least you'll love some of it. And if you don't, don't blame me. I didn't make it. Anyway, thank you so much to our contributors for talking to me about it. And also thanks to uh, Stephen Marsh for talking to me about his new book on writing and failure, which you can get wherever fine literature is sold. I am Neil Pollack. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more and we have a podcast every week Thank you for listening, thank you for reading I will talk to you soon You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Bookhouse, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to TheBookhouseMilburn M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N dot com to shop online and support small independent booksellers or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts, com.